verses 26 to 40. So follow with me as I read God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way to meet an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kendake, which means queens of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? Said. How can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we're thinking this morning about scripture, and we're thinking about it from this amazing passage. I'm really glad that Bijan, when he was looking at passages and wanting to kind of get these foundations in place for church, chose this passage to think about um, from scripture, where we see kind of scripture in action rather than just hearing doctrine about scripture. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's all well and good, but to see it in action, I think, is more compelling um, in some sense. And as we, we look at this, I really want to... I guess what I've been praying about this morning is that as we come to this, this would help put some foundations in place for you, for your life, so that you can see why it's so important that Scripture is the thing, really, the main voice that you listen to in a culture which is increasingly dominated by so many voices vying for our attention and competing for our attention, which, by the way, now might be a good time for you to make sure your phones are on Do Not Disturb. Look, um, let me frame this. A few years um, back, I was um, in Starbucks to order a coffee. Now, please don't judge me. I've subsequently repented, and I only go to independent coffee shops now. So, But anyway, I was in Starbucks, and I was second in the queue. And in front of me were two slightly elderly women who were, um, you know, came up to the front. The barista said, can I take your order, please? And the lady said, yes, we'd like two coffees, please. And the barista said, well, what type of coffee? And they said, oh, well, what, what type have you got? 
And then, right, the list came out, you know, cappuccino, latte, frappuccino, cold brew, espresso, flat white, and they were just totally overwhelmed by the choice, you could see, and they, they started asking detailed questions about the coffees, and I thought we're gonna be here all week. They, anyway, they narrowed it down, they said, just two lattes, please, and then the lady said, what size would you like? And you can imagine how the conversation went from after the size, we then got to the type of milk you want with it as well. And then it came to me and you know, I'd had plenty of time to think about it and they said, what do you want? And I said, I'll have a tall oat cappuccino, wet, extra hot, please. Nailed it. But then of course I had to give my name and all the rest of it, anyway. So the point is, is that in our world, we have so many choices, so many voices vying for our attention. Um, researchers in California, have um, estimated that every individual with a smart device is bombarded by the equivalent of 174 newspapers worth of information every day. Coming through your feeds, coming through your devices, on the billboards, just coming to you every day. And, and with such a proliferation of information, with this data smog, and with all the voices in London shouting loud at you to get your attention, and all claiming Big claims, your life will be better if you do this. Uh, if you get this app or get this data feed, then your life will improve. How do you possibly filter what is true from what is false? What is life-giving to what is gonna be detrimental? What is joyful to what is going to make you sad and lead you down a dark path? How, do, how can you possibly know? I mean, I, I think of this particularly for my kids. As they grow up, how am I going to equip them and help them to navigate this landscape, this data smog, where it can almost feel oppressive sometimes, right? Do we just go with the cultural consensus? Of course, lots of people go with that. You know, we're in the West, we're in enlightened culture, we've been through some tough times, but surely we know as a culture what's true and what's false, what's life-giving and what's not, right? But the problem is, and I know I'm kind of preaching to the converted here, looking at the diversity we've got in this room, I mean... What is the Western cultural consensus, first of all, in the midst of culture wars going on? There isn't a cultural consensus, that's a myth. So which, tie, which side of the culture wars are you gonna be on? But secondly, I mean, on so many issues, there are obvious blind spots in the Western consensus, as there are in every culture. Every culture has its blind spots. So just saying, well, the West is best is just parroting your blind spots, and really? When we might be in the global minority on opinions, are we so sure we're right? Isn't that just cultural imperialism for the blind today? I mean, we need to be careful of that, right? So how do we, do we just say our culture's gotta be right, in which case we're playing to the blind spots of the culture? So on the other hand, sometimes people say, well, listen to the voice of your heart. You know, be authentic to yourself, be true to yourself. If you go with that, you can't really go wrong. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to laugh at it, but have you seen my heart? I mean, goodness me, I wake up on a bad night's sleep and my heart feels very different to a good night's sleep depending on whether our four-year-old has visited us in the middle of the night, right? I don't want to go with my heart. I mean, it rises and falls, waxes and wanes. And, and also, if you say your heart is always right, you are, you are stunting yourself from personal growth, right? Because that means no one can tell me what's wrong because my heart says so. Well, there's no dynamic of change. So the heart is... No one has the monopoly on wisdom. Your heart can't always be right. Part of the precept of growing means to say my heart is often wrong and I'm keen to grow, so you speak into my life. So the authority of the culture can't be it. The authority of the heart can't be it. Okay, well, let's, do we go with science? The voice of science? I mean, we can test that, right? It's empirical, so we know. We put it in a test tube, we examined it. That must be right. 
again, if you read the history of science, how many major mistakes science has made, the environmental disaster we're coping with on the back of the fertilizer revolution, science got that one wrong. And then, of course, as we go to science, science can't tell us about ethics, how you should live, the goodness of life. can't tell you about aesthetics, the beauty of life. It can just give you certain facts on a certain narrow bandwidth. So that voice won't help. So where do we go to navigate the voices? How do we filter the true from the false, the bad from the life-giving? What do we know? What we need is a reliable voice. And this is where this time long commitment of Christians down the ages has been to say scripture is the voice, the life-giving voice and the true voice which can help you navigate all the other voices. Because in a funny way, the proliferation of information might be particular to our culture, but the rival voices has always been there, always been there for God's people, whether they're in Babylon or in Jerusalem. So let's look at this instant with the um, the Ethiopian eunuch and this interaction with him. And as we go through, I want you to see three things. Firstly, how scripture reveals the fallenness of culture. Secondly, how scripture reveals the idols of our hearts. And thirdly, how scripture reveals to us Jesus and his perfect and loving voice. Let's, um, let's pick it up. If you're picking it up on your devices or you can see the passage, then, um, then all very well and good, and that's good to follow it. Otherwise, I'll kind of take us through it a little bit. Now, one of the first things I want us to notice as we talk about scriptures, I'm so glad we've had, it, we've had him mentioned a number of times in our prayers, is see how this whole passage about scripture is topped and tailed with the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandake. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then verse 39 at the end. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Begins and ends with the Spirit. Everything in between, as we're going to see, is about Scripture. Why? Because the Spirit and the authority of Scripture go together. You know, sometimes it's one of the great sadnesses of the church is that you have this sense that there are spiritual Christians and then there are biblical Christians. Oh, can we just agree that that is a bad, bad dichotomy to make, right? Because the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the word of the truth. In other words, the great tool that the Spirit needs, that he uses, that he, he grows his church with, that he reaches new people with, is the Scriptures. And you can't read the Scriptures and really understand the Scriptures and be moved by the Scriptures without the life-giving work of the Spirit who takes them and applies them deep into your heart. In other words, every truly spiritual, spirit-committed Christian will be a scriptural Christian who's soaked and bathed in the scriptures. And every biblical Christian will be one who constantly is banging on about the work of the Spirit and saying, without him, it's all pointless. Unless he comes in power, there's no point. Spirit and scripture together. So we need to pray like crazy whenever we open the scriptures. We need to believe that we can only truly understand and be moved by the scriptures if the spirits are work. And at the same time, we need to be careful not to talk about the operation and the work of the spirit without also opening up the scriptures and saying, he works through the scriptures. So let's get that open. Amen? Amen. 
So, as the Spirit works through Scriptures, notice what he does. Scripture reveals the fullness of culture. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice what we're told about the Ethiopian eunuch. We're just given a few bits of key information, but this would get the synapses firing in the first century. For us, we need to do a bit more cultural work to understand. This is an Ethiopian eunuch. He works in the royal courts as the treasurer. He's been in the temple to Jerusalem to worship God, and he's on his way back home, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. That's the information we've got. Now, there's so much from that few bits of details which we can fill in. First of all, why is he a eunuch? It was common in the ancient world for people who were going to be in positions close to the seat of power, no delicate way of saying this, to get castrated. Partly, it was because it made them less threatening to those in power, right? Because it was a symbol of taking away some degree of physical power. But also, it was a kind of an oath of commitment saying, I am so committed to my role or to my career as being the treasurer that I'm prepared to give up my hopes for children and my hopes of getting married in order to get ahead in my career. And I hear what you're saying. You say, oh my goodness, how barbaric to live in a culture where you had to give up your family to advance in your career. Thank goodness we don't live like that in London today, right? You see the point? How much does culture really change? But that's who the Ethiopian was. He was a man who was committed to his career, so committed, in fact, that he'd undergone this painful, in every sense of the word, procedure. That was who he was. But there's something more we're told about him. We're told that he's on his way to worship at Jerusalem. This means that he's a God-fearer or a proselyte. It means that he's someone who has decided, though it's not his culture, to worship the God of the Jews, to worship the covenant God of Israel. And so he's making this amazing pilgrimage, 2,460, I looked it up on Google, kilometers from Ethiopia down to Jerusalem, and then the same back. So a 5,000-kilometer pilgrimage to worship at the temple. But we know from the ancient records what his experience of the temple would have been. Because at that time, the Jews had declared that no gentle or eunuch would be able to come into the temple except into the outer courts. So he was totally not welcome. So think about it for a moment. Here's a man for whom, because of his status, because of his career, because of the, the painful surgery he's undergone, every door opens to him, right? In Ethiopia, every door opens and everyone bows down as he walks into the room. He's traveled for weeks on end, 2,500 kilometers south to come to Jerusalem. And as he gets to Jerusalem to worship God, he gets turned away. He gets told, you can't come in. It doesn't matter what treaty he would have put forward. It doesn't matter how much he would have pleaded. He gets sent away. And so he's sitting there in the chariot on this long, long road back home with for the, maybe the first time in his life a door having been slammed in his face. You know, he's experiencing, therefore, or has experienced both the highs and the lows of culture. Highs in one sense because the sacrifices he made for his career means that that door is always open to him, right? He's in the royal court. He's the ultimate in. But on another sense, because of that, in a different culture, he's had a door slammed in his face. And this is the problem with culture. Every culture says to you, there's a certain set of criteria that you need to keep, and if you keep it, then you're in. But then you go to a different culture or a different culture expression and it says, well, because of that, the door slams shut in your face, right? 
We do it today. I mean, I made the joke about the career, but it's the same today, right? Give up this. Sacrifice this. Be committed to this. Show us that you really care. Performs appraisal, comes around. We're just not sure you're really committed. If you could just work a little bit longer hours, give up this, then we'd know you're really committed. Then the doors will open for you, right? As you work so hard and you go for it, and then as you push into it, you realize there's just other doors that are now shut to me in other areas. Or coach says to you, be popular, be authentic, get the right social media profile, hang out with the right type of people, go to the right coffee shops, you know, be ethical in these rooms, and then you know, you'll be popular, you'll be liked, you'll get enough likes, and then you realize actually in another form, another person is saying, oh, I can't believe they're just so, and that door is shut to you. Culture is always opening and shutting doors on the basis of what you do. But why then is the Ethiopian reading from Isaiah 53? Why? Well, again, the Jews would know that Isaiah 53 is in a section that leads up to Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, we get one of the few times that a eunuch is mentioned in the whole of Scripture. Listen to this. Let not the foreigner who has joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Now do you see how scripture is completely the opposite to culture here? Because culture has been saying, do this, do that, be better, try harder, give more sacrifice, then the doors will open for you. And here, Scripture says, even if you're an outcast, even if you're a foreigner, even if you're a eunuch, God will give within his temple a memorial and a name better than even sons and daughters. How poignant for a man who'd given up the hope of sons and daughters. In other words, it's saying you don't have to work hard to get in with God. You don't have to sacrifice everything for God to open doors. God flings open the doors for you anyway. Why? The only condition here is if you hold fast to my covenant. In other words, if you know him, if you're in a relationship with him, it's the total opposite of every culture that says, do this, do that, then you'll be in. God says, you're in. Just be in a relationship with me. That's all that's required. No list of do's, no great sacrifices. Just be in a relationship with me. It flips culture on its head. That's why he's drawn to Isaiah. That's why he's reading this, because his experience of the temple has been so different to the reality of what God says the true temple should be like. You see how scripture pushes back on every culture, even the Jewish culture of the day. It exposes it. It says it shouldn't be like this. So scripture reveals the fallenness of culture. Secondly, scripture reveals the idols of our hearts. Philip draws alongside the eunuch in his chariot and he hears him reading aloud and he asks, verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, how can I, said the eunuch, unless someone explains it to me? By the way, that is like a golden evangelistic opportunity. We all go away from this. We're thinking, if only I had this interaction, I'd be an amazing evangelist. Anyway, that's later. And so Philip and the eunuch read Isaiah 53 together. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? Now, please notice why this is such a poignant passage for the eunuch. 
Not only is it in this section of scripture from up to chapter 56 where a eunuch is explicitly mentioned, but notice what we're told about the servant that's mentioned in Isaiah 53. First, we're told he experienced humiliation and was deprived of justice. The eunuch's doing a 5,000-kilometer round trip to get into the temple, and he's just been turned away. He's just been humiliated. So it just connects with them on a heart level. Who is this servant who gets me? Who is this figure who, is, who goes through what I've gone through, who knows humiliation like I've just been through? That is the normative first connection point on Scripture. You read something in Scripture. I remember it. I wasn't a Christian when I was growing up. And then about age 20, 21, I was reading Scripture when my friends had led me to it. And I just started reading it. And I thought, this is me. This gets me. This gets the sense of high ideals but fallen reality. So it connects. He's experienced some humiliation. Secondly, he reads that this servant had no descendants. Of course, that's poignant for the eunuch. You see, in the ancient world, family and descendants weren't just something, they were your everything, right? Collective idols or ideals in ancient you know, culture would say that you're valuable if you can advance the community, the village, the nation state by having children. You're more valuable. And you see this because even in scripture, we have Jacob's wife, Rachel, when she can't have children, she says, give me children or I die. In other words, for me, it's so unbearable not to be able to bring children into the world, you might as well kill me. A good thing, if you like, an ideal, a wonderful thing like having children, and they are wonderful, becomes an idol that is a bad thing, something that's destructive, when it becomes your ultimate thing. When you see, if I don't have that, I might as well die. And we do this with everything. Our hearts do it. We take good things like family or career or popularity or beauty or material possessions or you know, whatever it is and we, or experience and we say, oh, these are good things. They're ideals. Sure. But we make them too important. We elevate them to become our everything. If I don't get that, I'm not even sure it's worth living. Of course, we don't phrase it like that, do we? But we say it like this. You know, ugh, I'm dying inside. See? Same language. I, I can't go on without it. And the better something is, the more likely it is that our hearts will distort and turn it into an idol. And the eunuch had said, I'm content to give up the thing that my culture says is everything, children, because then I'm in with the royal court. Then I'm in with my career. And scripture, as he's reading Isaiah 53, is saying, how's that gone for you? You've experienced humiliation, haven't you? You feel like you've lost everything, haven't you? You gambled the house on your career. Does it satisfy? I've dealt with so many people in my time as a pastor who've sat there and said, you know what? I made partner, best and worst day of my life. I remember one guy particularly said this like this. I made partner, best and worst day of my life. I said, tell me more. He said, best day because I've been, I decided, he said, when I was 13, I know that's an oddity, but nonetheless, some do. He said, I decided when I was 13, I wanted to be a partner for a law firm. So I've been working that ever since. He said, just turned 40, made partner early, best day of my life. I said, why worst day? He said, because it didn't satisfy. Imagine putting your labor in for 27 years for something that doesn't satisfy, and you realize it the day. I've had it the same with professional sports people. Won the cup. How was it? Oh, amazing. Brilliant. 
best day of my life. How are you feeling now? Hung over, wondering if there's more to life than this. That's what the idols do. They promise you everything. They deliver you nothing. And he's getting it from scripture. As he's reading scripture, he's reading about this humiliation experience. He's reading about being deprived of justice. And he's saying, this is me. Scripture is, is put in the cultural lens, if you like, or another metaphor. It's like having a cardiogram. I'm married to a doctor, which, by the way, is a, is a hazard when you invite people around for dinner because they just don't have normal social boundaries on gore and blood. You know, so the conversation moves to how was the operation. You're thinking, don't ask that question. We're having steak. Don't ask that question. You're not, you're not finished your steak. It's like a cardiogram. It, it takes an examination of your heart, and it's saying to the eunuch, How's life working out for you now that you've bet it all on your career? And it might not be for you, your career. You might be thinking, oh, I can't believe he's a career person. But we all have our idols. And if you're not sure what they are, if you have a good friend, just ask them what it is that you're always talking about. Or right now, if you've drifted off, where's your screensaver and your brain gone to? Because that thing you're thinking about, you're daydreaming about, that's your idol. That's the thing you're saying, if I get that, I'll get everything. But it doesn't. And so lastly then, as Scripture reveals to us the fallenness of culture and the idols of our hearts, Scripture reveals to us Jesus and his perfect and loving voice. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The eunuch has begun to realize that the fullness of culture and the idolatry of his heart is going to mean that he, he needs something more. You see, diagnosis is all very helpful, but if all that scripture does, it says, culture won't satisfy you, the uh, idols of your heart don't go there, then you're left with, well, so what will? So what should I live for? And this is where the brilliance of this passage comes up. Isaiah 53 isn't just revealing what his heart is like, it's also showing him where his heart can find true rest and true home. You see, the passage is not talking about the eunuch primarily, He's not the hero of that passage. He's talking about Jesus. You know, he asks a great question, who is this talking about? And the passage can't be talking about Isaiah the prophet. Why? Because the verse before, famously, Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is the servant of Isaiah 53, the iniquity of us all. In other words, Isaiah is saying, we all, that's me, and everybody else is in this category. And then over here, there's the servant. And all of our iniquity has been laid on him, on the servant. So wisely, the eunuch says, so so who's, who's the servant then? Who is it? Who is it the one who takes all the iniquity? Who is it the one who experienced true humiliation? Who is the one who was deprived justice? Who is the one who gave up his descendants for us all? Who is that? Well, you know who that is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what he did, right? When he went to the cross, he said, my friend, I, I know you've been living to get in, to be in, whether with the crowd or the inner ring at work. You've given up everything. You've made some serious sacrifices to be in, haven't you? He says, but when I go to the cross, I'm shut out. The Father closes the door on me in an eternal sense, in a cosmic sense, which is why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you slammed the door in my face? He was pushed out so you might come in. 
so that you can pray as we prayed earlier, just with amazing freedom. Father. You know, I could be in a work situation, any situation. My kids call me. They can just run and jump on my lap and say, Daddy, Father. Thankfully, no employee would ever dream of doing that, right? <laughs> Intimacy, access. Jesus was shut out so that you might come in. Some of you in the last couple of years particularly may have experienced some really disappointing, profound injustice or humiliation. And you're saying, culture, the idols of my heart, it's not working out for me. What do you do with that? Where do you take that? You look to the cross and you say, on the cross, he did nothing wrong. He lived the perfect life, full of dignity, full of grace, full of goodness, full of justice, full of truth. He was perfect. You look at him on the cross, humiliated, stripped naked, scorned, rejected by those that should love him. Not because he did anything wrong. He's the ultimate innocent sufferer. And so he says to you, if that's been your experience, if you've suffered unjustly, he says, I'm suffering for you now so that you might experience healing in your life. He was humiliated so that you might be exalted. He experienced injustice so that you might say, Lord, is there going to be justice? He'll say, yes, my friend, a day is coming. Trust me with it. You can trust me with it now. He's rejected so that we can be accepted. He is shut out so that we might come in. He dies so that you might have life. As the words of the hymn put it, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know now it's finished. In other words, scripture doesn't just reveal to you the problems of the culture and the problems of our hearts. It also gives you the solution the man, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, as I finish in the last couple of minutes, I just want to show you how the fact that Jesus has laid down his life for you means that Scripture should and can become the voice you listen to above all other voices. Let me give you a brief illustration. I worked at a school in New Zealand in my um, year off between school and university, and it was a school for disadvantaged kids um, called Dilworth School, foundation school, where everything that the kids needed was paid for and provided but because of that it they would take kids from the most vulnerable most challenging backgrounds and try to help them and um, and bring them on and, and uh, give them a, a good education and help them to become healed and more well-rounded um, and I remember one kid particularly came in and um, let's call him Bo that's not his actual name but let's call him that name and oh he'd had an awful awful life I mean abuse was in the background violence in the home gangs in there as well. So whole of the first term he comes in, you know, we, we had to make sure we put away the pool cues because in the first week we caught him swing a pool cue at another kid. Fortunately, the other kid ducked. But, you know, it was just awful, awful. And so with the kids, we would work very carefully with them to try to bring restoration into their lives. But with Bo, he just resisted everything, everything. So after about two terms, it was at the point where the, the last resort was we were just going to have to say to him, I'm sorry you can't stay. Um, because there are other kids who are waiting for these places, right? So reluctantly, this final conversation, so it was always done by the headmaster. And the headmaster did this. He called him into his office and he said, Bo, here's, here's the disciplinary record for you, and it's a pretty meaty thing of all the offenses you've committed. We want you to stay, Bo, 
We want you to be able to trust us that we've got your good at heart here at the school. And then he symbolically shredded the whole thing in front of Bo. Showed him grace. And you know what? It worked. Suddenly trust was established. Suddenly for the first time, Bo realized that here's an authority that is for me, not against me. And he went on to become one of the prefects to work at the school. Genuine, amazing transformation in the kid's life. It was incredible. In other words, grace did that. Now, why did it do that? Because Bo's problem was with authority. And as a coach today, we've got a problem with authority. So when I stand up here, if I say scripture's the authority, you kind of nod because you know you've got to nod. But inside you're going, authority, that's awful. That's awful. I don't trust authority. The hermeneutic of suspicion kicks in straight away, right? So if I merely stand up here and say, Scripture's true and bang on about capital T truth, I know I might persuade your heads, but I've lost your hearts. So what does God say to you? He says, yet it is authoritative. Yes, my voice is true in a capital T sense, but he says, I know I've got to win you, so I've given it all up for you. In other words, this is the one authority you can truly know is for you. How do you know that? Because he's taken the record of your wrongs and he's put it in the cosmic shredder. He knows everything about you, warts and all, ugly truths and all. And what does he do that? He doesn't use it against you. He uses it for your good and for life and for transformation. That is the authority you need. That is the authority that you can trust. That is the voice that you need to filter all other voices, right? So here's the thing as I land. When culture says, you are on the wrong side of the cultural divide, O Christian. You are outdated. Ethics has moved on. Beginning of life, end of life, sexual ethics, racial ethics even. When it starts to say to you, you've got it wrong, trust the Western culture. You know what you should say? Culture, have you died for me? No, the culture hasn't died for you. Culture, will you die for me? No, it'll never die for you. It will put you to death on the altar of its own ideals and idols. Don't get it wrong. But it hasn't died for you, so who are you going to trust when they're in conflict? My friend, trust the one who's died for you. Say, God knows, Jesus knows, it might make me look crazy to my friends, but I'm going to stick with, stick with God over culture. And when it comes to your heart's and you feel that yearning, you feel like, oh, Lord, this just doesn't feel right. I know your word says it, but when this other thing feels so right, how can this be so wrong? And your heart starts trying to persuade you in the small hours, you know what you need to say? My heart, you're so prone to wander. But this one, this better one, has died for me to win my heart. So go with him over your heart. That's sometimes the hardest decision you'll ever make. But you know what? The Christians who flourish and who end up living out a life-giving reality are the ones who at some point in their life have had to make that call. When either the culture or their heart is warred up against Scripture, they've said, Lord, you are the one who's died for me. I'm going to live for you. That's what it looks like to have the ultimate authority of Scripture in your life. So listen to him. He's died for you. He loves you. Sure, listen to culture. Listen to your heart. But ultimate authority goes to scripture and goes to God's voice. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the wonderful, joyful reality we see in the eunuch. This turnaround as he's baptized at the end, as he receives Christ as his Savior, but not only his Savior, also as his Lord, which means to say, Jesus, you've died for me. 
You are therefore an ultimate authority over me and a good authority that I can trust. Help us in our own personal battles, whatever they may be, to hold to you and to your voice and to be led by it, knowing that your way is life-giving because you've died for us. I ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.